This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the Sermon on the Mount Herzl edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we have a packed episode. Phoebe has a conversation with journalist Lahav Harkov about Israel-Diaspora relations in the current moment. We finally reveal the winner of this year's Sermon Slam. All this, Nachas, so much more, coming right up. Phoebe, how's it going? It's all right. How about you, Avi? Doing all right. You know, still in the unpacking. We're going to unpack the whole move and the unpacking in a future episode, I'm sure. But right now, I am slowly settling in and things are okay. I have this, like, friend of mine who is a French Jew who keeps posting. It, this hashtag has not trended. I looked. Uh, J'accuse2023. And I realized that of all people in the world that can probably have a, a strong opinion or can educate us of whether this is uh, an apt um, sort of hashtag in this moment, it would be Phoebe Maltzbovi. Um Can you help me out with this? Sure. Is this something... Um... The moment I was born for. Um, yeah. So basically, J'accuse was the article in L'Aurore, I guess it was. Um, and my pronunciation gets worse with time. But where uh, the novelist and activist Emile Zola really uh, got the Dreyfus Affair going. So this the Dreyfus Affair was when a French Jewish army officer, Alfred Dreyfus, was falsely accused of treason. There was a Dreyfus case, but it only became the Dreyfus Affair, which split French public opinion. Really, Zola is the person largely responsible for making that happen and with that article. So when people talk about the Dreyfus Affair, they're talking about this largely bloodless intellectual battle based on the fate of one man that where that was really a battle of ideas and i think that what's similar now is that what's happening outside of the middle east okay what's happening places like toronto um or you know elsewhere in canada and elsewhere in in north america and in europe is to a large extent a battle of ideas and it certainly has an anti-Semitism theme to it. So I think in that regard, I see parallels. I think in terms of who who are the Dreyfusards and who are the anti-Dreyfusards, I think everybody thinks they're the Dreyfusards would be one way to put it. Um, I can have my own views on this, but like, I do think everybody who's um, battling it out uh, symbolically is convinced that they are on the side of the good people. So... Yeah, I, I got the sense that, you know, there are people like this hashtag or this idea is that if you're not like Zola standing up as a non-Jew for the for the Jews in this case, um, then you're on the wrong side of history. Um, and I'm not sure that that's a perfect comparison. I mean, I don't think there are perfect yeah. comparisons. And I think that in general, in history, this and is I think the problem that's where with reductionist. Hashtags. Exactly. So I think this is where there's also all these issues with, oh, look, you know, it's it's their white people versus the brown people, you know, it's this or that it's it's actually Democrats versus Republicans or something. Um, 
No, like this is a specific thing happening in a specific place. That doesn't mean like for there are people who think that if you say it's complicated, that you're excusing one or another side's violence. No, I'm saying that like it's specific. I don't think you can get past the idea that it's specific. And when I see posts that are like, oh, actually, this is about indigenous people in North America. And then you have indigenous people in North America saying, no, actually, this has nothing to do with us. Um, yeah, and I think I think the more I guess, like, if I have any kind of general thought on this, that isn't sort of my own more specific politics on it, it is like, it's a specific issue, a specific thing happening. And it isn't also, it isn't bloodless or merely symbolic for Israelis or Palestinians. All right, moving on. You probably yeah. have a take on this too. Mm-hmm. All right, fire there it at me. Several articles <laughs> accusing leftists of supporting rape culture because of their support for Hamas. What do you make of this? Well, so first, I'd say that I don't think all leftists support Hamas. I hope, um, but as for those who do, I think what what you have to here is where um, we do need the North American context. So basically everybody's like, but what about me too, right? You know, like, that's what you're hearing, right? The sort of like, aren't these people supposed to, the progressives, aren't they supposed to care about this? And yes and no. So on the one hand, yes, like about five minutes ago, you were seeing things online about like, is it problematic if a 35-year-old dates a 36-year-old? Is that an age gap relationship? And, you know, should we be concerned? And now suddenly it's like Hamas can go in and like rape little girls. And that's, that's you know, whatever, right? Like that's that's how it can seem sometimes to be going on parts of the left. But if you look at it a little bit differently, there was Me Too, but then there was 2020, 2021, the racial reckonings and this and the idea of the Karen becoming the kind of evil figure of like the, the sort of that like white women's tears. All of this came up a few years after Me Too and is, I think, possibly more of a reference point for the current left. And I don't think that the current left is actually presenting itself as like a women's rights advocacy group. And I would even add to that that... Um, to say that you care about women's safety has become almost like a right wing coded thing to say, because it's like, oh, does that mean you're a turf? You know what I mean? Like it has all these other sort of connotations. Um, so I don't find it strange. Like I find most of what's going on very strange. I am extremely surprised by historical events. I am not one of these people who's like, oh, I saw all of this coming. I did not see any of this coming. It's scary and horrible. But the specific thing of why would progressives not necessarily be all that bothered about rape? Well, I think that's just it. That has not been the big progressive preoccupation of the moment. So even if you separate out the idea that you get like, I mean, what what people will say online uh, of that sort of political bent is, but look at the look at the death tolls, you know, among Palestinians. That's what really matters. It shouldn't matter. Like, uh, what are a few rapes compared to? You know, that's what you'll see. But I think that like it's not actually surprising. They're basically using it as this like bludgeon, right? It's a very blunt tool to be able to say, well, there are people raping on this side, and so therefore you should not support any of this because rape is always bad. Um, and you know, on the other hand, like there's just so much happening there. I, I'm not justifying rape, but I'm looking at all the other atrocities. Why are you singling out this simply because you know that it's like a sensitive spot for the left, right? You should be able to go to the left and say, um, 
you, if you support Hamas, you're supporting murder, you're supporting torture, you're supporting a terrorism, right? And it's not freedom fighting, it's, uh, it's terrorism in the name of, you know, something else. And using this thing is sort of this like, well, um, the way that, I'm, did we bring it up on a, on a past show where I, or was it just in a meeting where like everybody likes to point out, well, if you support Hamas, they're anti, you know, LGBT. So how could you be LGBT for the left and for, for free, free Palestine if they really like crack down on gay rights in you know in Gaza um, because they're Hamas you should be able to do that and so it's like picking and choosing all the little things that Hamas is doing when in reality Hamas is doing everything wrong right Hamas isn't doing anything right so why are you just pointing out the, the couple of things well, that they're doing wrong could to I, be could able I just to build go on to what an interest saying? group yeah <laughs> I, just to build on that the idea that this moment is going to make Jews anti-Zionist is just the sort of hilarious to me in a way because like i don't think it's doing that i think there are a few anti-zionist jews and i i don't think they're fake jews i've i've written about this i I think they're they're as jewish as the next person i I don't whatever i think these are like a few people um who are getting a ton a ton a ton of media coverage at the moment because they're very symbolically interesting to people anti-zionist jews um because look look you could be jewish and not a zionist here are three people and look at them doing that i guess i don't think that the average sort of not particularly engaged jew is looking at all of this and feeling like israel is in the wrong and i think a lot of people see you know accounts of like a jewish baby having been burnt in an oven and to death and think well you know i don't think that's like sending them out to go buy a kefia. I just, I don't think that's what's happening. Um, yeah. But that's just, that's just little me going anecdotally <laughs> based on what I'm, what I'm seeing in the world. Yeah. Um, I think you're probably right. And uh, we can leave that one there. I, uh, opiners are going to opine as, as always, but that's what we do too. Uh, let's get on with our show. Uh, let's hear your interview with Lahav Harkov uh, right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. We're joined today by Lahav Harkov, who's senior political correspondent at uh, Jewish Insider, formerly of the Jerusalem Post, um, and who lives in central Israel. And Lahav is a journalist I've been following for quite a long time on uh, Twitter or that which was formerly known as Twitter. So uh, Lahav, I'm going to ask you to start. uh, How would you describe just the range of Israeli public opinion these days um, on everything that's going on? Because I think often in in, uh, Canada, one hears a lot about a lot of people, but not necessarily Israelis. So, so I think Israel Israelis are overwhelmingly supportive of the aims of this war. Um, you know, 
foremost being to try to get the hostages back, but also to get rid of the, the threat of Hamas that Israel has been living under. Um, look, I mean, Hamas has been around since 1987, but they've been controlling the Gaza Strip since 2006 um, and have, you know, periodically rained rockets on southern Israel and beyond uh, for every few years, every year or two since then. Um, so I think, you know, you there's tiny, tiny minority voices that are sort of opposed to this war to get rid of them, but it really overwhelmingly, and especially among Israeli Jews, uh, they're very supportive of the war. Now, the politics is something else. Um, I also, I mean, there was a poll a couple of weeks ago that showed 86% of Israelis um, say, uh, blame Netanyahu at some level for the failings that led to the war. So I, he's like a, a political whiz and people have constantly said his career is over and then somehow he's survived. So who knows? But it does seem like this is really going to be the end of the line for him. So, but the on the left, um, you start hearing people who are like, we should get rid of him now. We should have an election soon or have him be replaced with someone as soon as possible. And as you move more towards the right, you hear people say, listen, like there needs to be a reckoning, but now is not the time to deal with politics. Um, they're more willing to tolerate him, uh, you know, even if they're many of them are, you know, unhappy uh, with the, the things that were not done in the lead up to this war. Um, so the, and I think that that, political disagreement, especially in the last week or so, where you're starting to hear more and more. In the first few weeks, there was sort of a shock and, and mourning the losses. And so there wasn't as much politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was wondering, because uh, it seems just from what I can gather from online, but that's why we have you here to <laughs> um, clarify a bit, like there's a really big difference between the Israeli left, and I'm talking specifically about Israeli Jews on the left in Israel, and the diaspora Jewish left. Well, I think that there's... If, forgive me that I'm not entirely sure what's going on with Canadian Jews, but I see like with U.S. Jews that the Jewish left is, is really split in some ways, that there are many people who would consider the, Jewish people who would consider themselves of the left who feel betrayed by the left, um, who feel that they're not being sympathetic. They're not at all sympathetic to the you know massacre that took place the, to the, of the horrors. And they're not sort of reaching out to their Jewish friends to ask how they can help them be allies, whatever other uh, buzzwords of the left you want to use. And then you have people on the left who, you know, are out there marching on the street uh, with the pro-Palestinian protests. But I think that that second category is is much, much smaller. Right. I mm -hmm. mean, um, I know Canadian Jews are somewhat more politically conservative than American Jews are. Um, but I, I think that you know, at least from my, from what I see on the American left, um, the like anti-Zionist Jews, they skew younger, uh, but they're still a very small group. Yeah, this is something that's really struck me a lot in um, the discourse, I suppose, this idea that, well, not all Jews are Zionists, and then they find like the five truly anti-Israel Jews who, each of whom has like, written 10 open letters. And I don't know, like, it's just it's tokenism. Yeah, I feel like they keep being brought up in context of like, well, my Jewish friends don't support Israel. It's like, it's unusual demographically. Right. I mean, absolutely. Like, again, sorry to bring up the America all the time. But you look at like, say, Bernie Sanders, who is someone who you would think would be all in with these pro Palestinian marches, just because who his usual political allies are. And yet he said in an interview recently that like a ceasefire would be a reward for Hamas that they're they just use it to regroup and attack Israel again, which is something that you hear from 
you know, most Jews I talk to these days. So it really, um, it really is just like this small sort of token group. And there's a lot of overlapping membership in the three or four organizations that organize all these protests. Yeah, that does seem to be my hunch. And I guess like now I get now I get to be a Bernie bro after all this time. Um, but yeah, so I guess I'm wondering what what did Hamas think it was doing? Like what, what was the point of this apart from being like a nightmare scenario that keeps um, the mothers of all Jewish children uh, up at night? I think Hamas knew exactly what it was doing, to be honest. I think it, it knew what the result would be, maybe not the extent of it, but there's an article in the New York Times today, um, which I thought was, I mean, it's, it's like sort of strange to call it a good article because it was horrifying to read, but um, they spoke to senior Hamas members and about sort of what they were thinking and what are they thinking going forward. And, and they said that, First of all, their intention was to sort of put the Palestinian cause on the map again. They wanted the they felt like the Middle East was forgot about the Palestinians and they wanted them to pay attention. They definitely succeeded on that front. And then they they knew that Israel was going to strike back harder than it had in the past because they knew that they were attacking Israel much worse than in the past. Um, and then you see all these interviews that are on social media now that are being translated mostly by um, memory um, which is an organization that like watches um, Middle East and Arabic media and translates it, um, that senior members of Hamas are saying things like, we'll just do October 7th mm-hmm. again and again and again as much as we need to. So I, I think they knew what was going to happen and they don't have that much regard for civilian life, um, including Palestinian civilian life. Were you surprised by global reactions and how sort of sympathetic many around the world seem to be to... <laughs> Hamas, I suppose, would be. I don't see. I, I, I don't yeah. think, and I'll get into this in a moment. I don't think everybody um, who says that they're for a ceasefire is sympathetic to Hamas. I think people have different reasons for saying the things they say. But, but I mean, yeah, it seems like there's been a bit more pro-Hamas sentiment than I, I would have expected, given the nature, just the nature of the crimes. I mean, really. I guess I was surprised by it in in North America. I wasn't so surprised by it in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, nor in Great Britain. Um, a lot of the like phenomena that we see on college campuses in North America, the like anti-Israel things, they and and that have gotten more extreme in recent years. They were like that in the UK like ten years ago. I, I have a friend who his job in life basically is to be like a pro-Israel speaker. He goes around on college campuses and gives all these speeches. And I think it was 10 years ago, maybe it was eight years ago where he had to, he was like barricaded in a room because there were anti-Israel people trying to attack the event that he was holding. So, you know, the, you're seeing that now on American campuses, unfortunately it's, it's terrifying. Um, but I was le- much less surprised in Europe. Um, but the extent of it in the United States, in New York, on all of these college campuses, and maybe the thing that shocked me the most is people chanting glory to the martyrs. You know, you have just like a bunch of like white 20 year old girls <laughs> chanting glory to the martyrs. And you're like, do you understand what you mean? Like you're you're joining a death cult, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um it's been strange. And because I mean, I, I researched French Jews, um, that was what I did, like my PhD on. So the French aspect, European aspect of this, yeah, it does seem it just seems more like your like the US is to some extent, and Canada also to some extent kind of becoming more like Europe. But I guess uh, one thing I was wondering, 
I think the typical North American, like Gen Z or millennial who calls for a ceasefire is kind of responding on some level to this idea that October 7th was Israel's 9-11, and it, which it was called at the time, you know, and is kind of transposing the current situation in Israel on, and in Gaza onto the Iraq war and basically saying that they don't want Israel to do what the U.S. did after 9-11 because it didn't necessarily help matters um, and it didn't, you know, I see this and I think that this isn't exactly uh, analogous, but I do think that that's some of what's happening. And and if so, how would you um, perhaps say compare these two situations? I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's analogous. I also think, if anything, it would be more like Afghanistan than Iraq, Right, which... um, Well, sure, sure. Right, because, I mean, Iraq was started on false pretenses, and we could all argue over whose fault the false pretenses were, but but Afghanistan had a more sort of direct, clear connection in a way. But, you know, the the Taliban attacked the U.S. once, and Hamas, like, has been attacking Israel every few years, and then this was just much worse than ever before. Like, Israel kept saying, okay... We, we can take this, we're going to try to deter them a bit, and then we're going to go back to our regular lives and, and we can handle it. And for the people who live near Gaza, who live in the Western Negev, um, it was horrible and traumatizing. And But mo- for most of Israel, like they barely felt it, right? And now on October 7th, it was just an attack that was so big that suddenly everyone realized that this idea of of deterrence and that we just have to sort of re-up the deterrence every couple of years obviously failed. Um, so I do think it's very different. I also think that Americans and maybe the West in general, um, they don't realize that like sometimes you can have a war that is just a short war and you win. But that's been most of Israel's experience, right? When Israel goes to war, it's usually a month, a couple months. In one case, it was six days. Uh, um, and mm-hmm. then you have a new situation. And uh, that's not to say that that's what's going to happen now. I don't know what's going to happen now. But it, you know, not every war is Vietnam or Iraq. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that is a lot of what um, what I'm seeing just seems to be what somebody on Twitter, I think, called America brain, that something was very America brained. And I found that a, a good expression, because I feel like that's a lot of it. And that's actually kind of my next question, which is, that what seems to have also happened um, in the North American discourse specifically is this idea that this is really about white people versus racialized people, and that that's really who's fighting here. <laughs> and um, it's uh, it sometimes seems like, on, on the one hand, it seems like kind of, you could just point to the demographics of Israel and be like, what, is, what, is, what are you talking about? But uh, it's um, but then I've also seen, unfortunately, on the right, sort of far right, some people who are saying, yeah, like, oh, like, go Israel, go white people. You know what I mean? In this kind of bizarre way. It's like, do you know the demographics? You know, um, but I guess I'm just wondering what what you would say people should uh, in North America, particularly perhaps the some of the younger ones should know who are interpreting this conflict as basically like North American racial politics. I mean, as you were referring to, it's it's entirely different. I mean, the two things are not really analogous at all. Um, in a sense, you have 
I mean, you can't really compare the like Jewish return to the land of Israel to anything else in history because it's it's basically unique. I mean, someone might be able to find some other obscure similar example, but uh, you know, there aren't many cases of an indigenous population being forced out of its land and then returning to it two thousand years later, right? Like, <laughs> I can't think of anyone else. And so, like to begin with, you know that that's very different from you know, slaves being brought across the ocean as slaves. And I mean, the entire situation is, is different. You know, we can go so century by century or decade by decade of history. Um, you know, and then there's the whole demographics thing. Like you said, I mean, Israelis are very, very diverse, certainly if you're going to narrow things down to color or to the origin of people's, you know, grandparents. Um most Israeli Jews are what are called Mizrahi Jews, which are from North Africa or the Middle East, which, you know, most of these people would not consider, I think, North African and Middle Eastern people to be white. They would consider them people of color. Um, and so that sort of makes them the same as the Palestinians in that sense. I, I think that people who are a little bit smarter about it and maybe a little bit more academic about it would be talking more about power imbalances, which, you know, brings you to sort of a whole... The, the whole academic theories that have become so dominant um, on campuses, right? Where it's not necessarily the color, right? It just has to do with who has more power. But, you know, the weaker person is not always the right person. And I don't, you know, is Hamas, you get into these murky questions where, well, you know, a nine-month-old baby, he's stronger than the Hamas terrorists who kidnapped him. Yeah, it's... Uh... I don't even know where to begin. Um, something that really just does strike me is those a lot of people who are sort of arguing about this online um, seem to think that they're kind of going to relitigate 1948. It seems to be very much more about 1948 than 1967. And it seems to be very much this idea that if you had the best arguments online that you could somehow that, that you would have had a different a different idea than <laughs> than starting a, you know, a modern Jewish nation state in that location. And there seem what seems to be missing. I don't know, like whether you've seen this also, but just sort of this idea of Israel as, a, as an actual place that does exist and that's not like currently being suggested as a something to maybe put there. You know what I mean? Like I don't know how if I'm explaining this right, but no, but the <laughs> there are definitely some nuggets in there that I think are good to discuss. I mean, first of all, I think for liberals liberal people in general, um, or people on the moderate left, right? That it's the question is 1967, right? Generally, people in the center to left think that there should be a two state solution. But um, people further to the left have maybe been more subtle about it, but have often thought that Israel is, you know, they say it's a colonialist settler colonial entity, etc, which is also absurd for many reasons. But and so I think that like the mask has come off in a lot of ways, because, you know, when, when people say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, you know, there's no from the river to the sea are the places where the two state solution is supposed to be. So if the whole place is going to be free Palestine, whatever free Palestine means, um, then you don't have a two state solution. Then you are relitigating 1948, like the very establishment of the state of Israel. So I think you're really right about that. One thing, though, I was going to ask, and this is going to be more of a tough question, perhaps, um, because so there was a travel warning um, for Israelis that I, I watched the video of this um, that included a warning 
that um, Israelis who are abroad should not present themselves, should not be sort of open about being Israeli or Jewish because of all the anti-Semitism in the diaspora. Yeah, yeah, the National Security Council published right. travel warning. Right, um, right. So I guess what I'm wondering is just how one squares this with the fact that, that while there have been, and I don't want to diminish them, isolated incidents of anti-Jewish violence um, in the diaspora since October 7th, and obviously before October 7th, as well as plenty of, you know, uh, graffiti and other, and goodness knows how many social media posts, it's difficult at this moment to make the case that Israel is the world's safest place physically for Jews. So I guess I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Look, I know people who... I know people who left Israel since the war started, like people who have family outside of Israel may have been recent immigrants. And so I'm not saying that I don't think they left for good, but they were like, we don't want to be here right now. And I also know people who were outside of Israel and came back and said they they feel safer in a place that Jews are running the show and there's a Jewish army. So I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's subjective, but um, uh in terms of the travel warning, I think a lot has to do with being visibly Jewish and visibly Israeli. You know, Israelis are not known to um, use their indoor voices. And if you're speaking very loud in Hebrew, someone might recognize it. You might be wearing a T-shirt or carrying a tote bag that has Hebrew on it. And then you could be a target if you're in some sort of big city where there's been these anti-Israel protests. I mean, there's a lot of harassment going on that we've certainly, mm-hmm. you could see online in endless videos. So, um, and, and violent incidents, um, even if they're not so many, thank God at this point. Um, and the threat level is very high, right? Like there's, there's been a jump. The FBI has said that it's like record highs of threats. So I think that they're referring to all of that. You know, they're telling people to be cautious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, my my feeling here is sort of I want to be like everybody should just shout that they're Jewish from the rooftops, even if they're not Jewish. That's kind of my um, although. But yes. then I I did say that, and now I feel like people keep forwarding me people who aren't Jewish who are doing this, but they seem to constantly do it with this big "I'm not Jewish," but and I feel like that kind of um, may defeat the purpose. But uh, it's like this <laughs> "I am Spartacus." Yes, moment. that's exactly yeah. exactly. Um, because yeah, I mean, if it, it takes some heart in the fact that there, I have, I've heard people speaking Hebrew loudly in Toronto and wearing stuff with Hebrew on it. And it has been and like since October 7th, I mean, and I think, um, so far, at least as I've been walking around, like children in the aquarium were wearing shirts with Hebrew and they seemed fine and they were just having a nice time. But I, I just, I guess I worry sometimes that there's the too much emphasis I don't know. I feel like there needs to be a certain amount of like Jews exist. Jews are going to keep existing. And oh, I don't uh, even no, know how I, to explain I this. I agree. Like you shouldn't have to be embarrassed in any way to be Jewish. You should be able to walk around, um, you know, and proudly declare that you're Jewish and wear whatever you want, even if it says shows that you're Jewish or <laughs> yeah. Israeli. Um, you know, I, I think Unfortunately, in since 2014, more or less, whenever Hamas attacks Israel, it becomes like a more tense time for diaspora Jews. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, so just one one more question, though, that I, I wanted to ask you, because you wrote about this, and I found it really interesting what you wrote, um, uh, which is just about sort of how people um, who are not in Israel can stay informed. And no, I don't mean in terms of like the all of the misinformation, but just specifically, like you wrote about a man who'd been posing as an IDF spokesman, but isn't. Um, 
So what was going on there and how did that turn out? So there's this this guy. Um, he is he denies that he's a messianic Jew, but he's a Jewish person who believes in Jesus. So you could take that however you want. His name is Hanania Naftali. Um, and he uh, he grew up in Israel. I I don't know if he was. I think he's too young to have been born in the Soviet Union. So I think his parents came to Israel from the Soviet Union. I'm not entirely sure. Um, and he grew up in Israel. He went to the army. I'm not sure when exactly he found Jesus. But um, he, after the army, started um, basically making social pro-Israel social media content. And he was doing this like freelance, like it was his own thing. And he grew in popularity, he basically became like a pro-Israel social media influencer. Someone in Netanyahu's office several years ago saw this, liked his videos, brought him on to help with Netanyahu's social media content. Um, and he had been working sort of as a contractor for the Likud party, basically. But he was making videos for Netanyahu. It wasn't he wasn't really making like Likud political things. Um in any case, and he seemed to have been doing work for Netanyahu as recently as the beginning of this year. But again, it was he was like it was like freelance. He's not like a full time Netanyahu employee. And when the war started, as far as I can tell, and nobody has and, and you know, and I've confirmed this with various people who work for Netanyahu and Likud, he has not been doing any communications relating to the war. And also his personal social media stuff is not. Netanyahu stuff, right? Like he was helping Netanyahu produce content. Anyway, he s- let it seem like he like implied without saying exactly that he was working for Netanyahu and he recorded videos wearing like the uniforms that reservists um, wear, which I don't like, I don't even know what, what it's called in, in English, but it's like not the dress uniform, the more casual uniform. And that's what reservists wear in Israel. And um, he even recorded a video like that. He even did a TV interview wearing the uniform, which is actually against the law. um, If you're not authorized by the army to do so. And people, he made a lot of mistakes. I mean, he used like footage from the Syrian civil war and called it Israel. He like used AI to like spruce up some photos. So like the photos weren't totally fake. But they looked really fake because he used AI to make them look better, um, like less blurry and whatever. And he just he made all kinds of mistakes when the um, there was the explosion next to the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza that at first people like misreported that Israel had bombed it and that hundreds of people have died. And in the end, neither of those things are true. But he in the immediate aftermath wrote like, yes, Israel bombed this hospital, but Hamas hides right. under hospitals, which was incredibly damaging. And people were quoting him as a government spokesman. Um, so I did some digging, as, and as I mentioned, he's not working for Netanyahu these days. He's not serving as the idea of spokesman. He's just making it look that way. And then he has, you know, a link to his Patreon pinned to the top of his Twitter page. Um, <laughs> Aren't there? Is, yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering, just uh, one final question. Sorry, I realized that it popped into my head as we're chatting, um, which is just, do you think that this moment is going to bring diaspora and Israeli Jews closer together, further apart, or some some other possibility? I think that it's already bringing diaspora Jews and Israel closer together, because I think a lot of people who didn't think they cared that much about Israel now care about what's happening, for starters. Um, and I think that it... it 
diaspora Jews, again, who were not like following what's going on in Israel as closely, like maybe has a little bit more of an understanding of Israel's challenges now. Um, so in that way, it can bring them closer. I think there's something unfortunate, though, you know, that I, I would like there to be like a, a positive connection to Israel. Um, Israel is like a really, I think it's a great place to live and a great place to visit and an interesting history. And like, it would be nice um, to have connections based on positive things and not only on, you know, this sort of fear that the Jewish safe haven is not safe or, you know, sympathy for the victims of an attack. But I guess we'll start here and try to build something positive uh, going forward. Well, fair enough. Um, thank you so much for joining us in Bolshoi. Chai. Thanks for having me. <laughs> When Jewish families in the GTA are struggling, workers at Jewish Family and Child Service are there. These workers make sure every Jewish child has a safe home. They support Holocaust survivors living in poverty. They ensure no elderly members of our community are isolated. They provide grief counseling, offer financial support for impoverished families, and help Jewish children go to camp. But they make, on average, $10,000 a year less than their counterparts at other agencies. Their employer has threatened to lock them out, right as the Jewish community faces a growing crisis of anti-Semitism. To make sure Jewish families can count on help when they need it, we need to take care of these workers. Right now, more than 100 workers at Jewish Family and Child Service are fighting to ensure their employer invests in them and in the Jewish community. Go to cupe.ca slash jfcs to learn more and send a message of support. So this moment has been both long in the making, and we've been waiting to announce it for quite a while, too. Our original plan was to announce the winner of the Great Canadian Sermon Slam right after all of the holidays in time for Shabbat Bereshit, when we start the cycle of Torah reading again. But then the terrible tragedy of Simchat Torah and its aftermath happened, and we thought it best to wait a bit while the world found its bearings again. We are far from being on sure footing as a community, but we couldn't wait any longer. We also thought this would be a good way for people to break out of the endless doom scrolling that is a feature of our lives. And so without further ado, I would love to introduce the winner of 5784's Great Canadian Sermon Slam, Rabbi Lisa Grishkow. Rabbi Grishkow is the senior rabbi of Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom in Montreal. And while I consider her a good friend, I can assure you this in no way affected the judging of her sermon. Rabbi Lisa, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So, you know, when we talk about the Sermon Slam uh, this year, last year, we talk about how we judge sermons on their ability to teach something new, how they give a chidush um, in some way, uh, their relevance to contemporary life, as well as how engaging they are, you know, a bit of the entertainment factor. How do these factors come into play whenever you write an average sermon on Shabbat or for the holidays? Well, those are very different things, of course, right? How one approaches a sermon, at least how I do, on a weekly va- basis versus the high holidays, which is really... Uh, a much more intense, immersive kind of process. But at the end of the day, I try to write the kind of sermon that I'd like to hear, right? And so it has to be human. It has to include stories. It's got to be grounded in Torah and text. Um, but I'm a huge fan of the Midrashic technique of the Petechta, of just starting out way in left field and catching people's attention and having them wonder how on earth we're going to come to the themes of the text or the themes of the day. That's really it. I try and write the kind of sermons that, that would keep me awake. 
Yeah, I find that uh, I've heard that from rabbis also, that they get often bored of themselves or bored of other people. And so if they can keep themselves entertained, that's always an important um, piece for that. Um, What's your process for writing a sermon generally? Do you have like a weekly routine that you do? Do you have like a, uh, a style of doing things where you say, by Monday, I have to be thinking about this. By Wednesday, I have to be doing that. I have to memorize it by a certain point. I have to keep it written. Um, what do you do? Uh, not many of those things. Of those things. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I think on a weekly basis, it's just, it's, it's percolating. It's percolating all week, right? And as congregational rabbis, we have the privilege of Uh, and responsibility of being part of people's life cycle events. So by the time it comes to Shabbat, the Parsha may be something that we've already engaged with, right? Or that I've engaged with in a baby naming or a bris or in preparing for a bar mitzvah or God forbid a funeral. Um, So there are different encounters with the Parsha over the course of the week. There are different commentaries that I go to, different things that I might be reading or thinking about. And so it all is just percolating on a weekly basis until it comes closer to Shabbat. When it comes to high holidays, it's completely different. I really take the summer to um, to read very widely and deeply um, and to start saving things, taking notes, putting things together, percolating there too, but it just is a longer process. I sometimes say that I start thinking about the next High holidays, the day after Yom Kippur is done. You don't even take off Cheshvan for that time, right? The the proverbial rabbi's heart Cheshvan. Yeah, well, it certainly hasn't been that kind of Cheshvan this year, right? <laughs> that, that is correct. Um, can you walk us through uh, this year's uh, sermon, AI, Avraham Avinu? Uh, what led you to, to doing this, to thinking about it? And uh, why now? Why this? It's a good question, and it really does feel like a lifetime ago at this point, right? Because so much has happened it really does, yeah. since then. Uh, and it's a funny thing with High Holiday Serpents. I find that so much thought goes into them. But once they're they're behind us, they're behind us, and we're on to the next thing. And it's sometimes not until we hear back from people, sometimes years later, that we know that something has really had an impact or hit home beyond the moment of delivery. Uh, but with this one, yeah. I didn't feel... Um, equipped to give a sermon about AI per se, but I was really interested in this notion of confirming one's humanity, right? I thought that was a great phrase, not I am not a robot, but positively to confirm one's humanity. And I've been thinking about how as we've been emerging from COVID, which is ironic to say since I currently have COVID myself, um, but as we've been emerging on a societal level in the synagogues, right, we're rediscovering these points of contact and these questions of what makes us human? What do we what do we need? What can we offer one another as individuals as can, and how precious that is? And I think there was a lot of talk during COVID of how we are going to, you know, reevaluate our connection to community, to work, to life, to time. And those things slip out of our hands very quickly when we're not um, forced to look at them. But I think the great gift of the high holidays is it gives us the opportunity to look at the things that matter. And I think that's the one of the responsibilities we have as rabbis is to try and draw our own attention and our our community's attention to the things that matter. Um, 
You know, you mentioned the the events of the past of the past month has been really a moment of un, un, upheaval. Um, I want to be able to turn to that just for a minute. Rabbis are often under tremendous strain in general uh, and juggle so much um, now more than ever, especially in times of crisis. Um, as recently as this week, there was a show in your community that had an attempted at firebombing in Montreal in Dollar Desormeaux. How are some of the ways that people turn to their rabbinic leaders in times like this? And since we're talking about sermons, I would say the sermon is really just the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, For sure, yeah. Because it's one it's one forum that we have, but so much of what we do is is one on one, or it's in small groups in conversations. And I think, especially with something like what's happening now, um, you're right. We, are, I think, all of us, all of us as human beings, all of us as Jews, and those of us who are rabbis, are being pulled in many different directions. There's the the outward call to um, to be in solidarity with Israel, to see how we can help, what we can do in the face of something that has been absolutely horrific and has affected our friends and family in countless ways and continues to, right? One of the first things I do when I get up in the morning is check on our Israeli family's WhatsApp group uh, there in Rishon LeZion. They've been hit by bombs, by rockets every day. Um, so, so there's the Israel-oriented piece of it. And then there's the question of how do we help um, comfort and strengthen our community internally when we're seeing a lot of ugliness of anti-Semitism rearing its head? Um, how do we help people who are trying to live their own commitments and their own values and are scared uh, and don't know a way forward, right? All of us are are navigating pretty uncharted territory, Um and so there are many elements, obviously, to what we're doing right now. And then on top of that, there's, you know, media requests and uh, interviews and statements. And those things in some ways are not so important, but in other ways are important because it's important that our community has a voice and that there are many voices that are heard within our community um, and many perspectives and that we we continue to humanize the face of what's happening so there really are many, many levels. I could probably say it more articulately, but when you're in it, it's hard to step back from it. For sure. Um, one of the ways that I know you is as an outspoken advocate for peace. You know, you've spoken in the past at rallies for democracy in Israel. You've had Palestinian advocates for peace speak at your congregation. In a time like this, how do we bridge this divide that seems to be growing within the Jewish community that is as polarized as we can possibly be? And we also, how do you maintain a stance of wanting a truly just and lasting peace in the Middle East at the same time? That's not a small question, uh, my friend. Absolutely not. <laughs> I think in some ways the Jewish community is quite united right now. Uh, and I'm hearing the same from Israeli society. There are people who agree on absolutely nothing except that they're trying to support each other in the response to October 7th, Right. And so there is a strong and powerful sense of unity. I, I sometimes wish it didn't take tragedy to give us that sense, um, but it's better to have it than not to have it, right? I think along with most Israelis, most Jews who are on the progressive end of the spectrum are feeling like now is not the time that we are going to figure out how we move forward in terms of the politics of Israel, of Palestinians, Right now, it's it's much more existential. Not that the other isn't existential, but this is urgently existential, right? That Israel is facing significant threats, that there's this ongoing um, heartbreak of the hostages being held in Gaza and not knowing what's happening to them. Uh, and so the focus right now has to be, I think, on 
on supporting Israel's very existence. And only then do I think we have the opportunity to take a breath and to say, how on earth do we move forward from this? How on earth do we hold on to the the hope of coexistence? And I think the challenge for many of us, myself included, is that we don't have any more um, faith or confidence in the Netanyahu government than we did a month ago. I, I, I worry a lot about the direction all of this is going, but I also know, first of all, that I don't know even what I don't know. I'm not a geopolitical strategist. I'm not a politician. I <laughs> am not going to opine on things that I know nothing about, which, by the way, I think is one of the important things for rabbis and sermons, right? Like, stay in your lane. We're not op-ed columnists. We're not scientists. We're not politicians. It's got to be rooted in Torah and in Jewish values and Jewish life if what we say is to have any legitimacy or authenticity or or meaning. So I know what I don't know. And I know that this is an impossible situation, right? Nobody wants a humanitarian crisis at Gaza. I mean, maybe Hamas does, but nobody else I know wants that. It's awful. And at the same time, you can't have Hamas as a neighbor. You can't have a repeat of October 7th. And so those are really tough questions that I think we're all going to have to grapple with. And one of the things I spoke about uh, just a week ago, I think it was, is how we're still really in a period of mourning. We're just at the end of Shloshim after October 7th. And when you're in mourning, you shouldn't have to issue statements. You shouldn't have to come up with strategies. You have to just be able to mourn. And after that, I think, whenever and whatever that looks like is when we have to figure out how do we as a Jewish community here in Montreal figure out our response? How does Israel find a way to move forward with hopes of democracy and coexistence and ultimately peace? Because that that can't be out of reach, right? As Jews, we always pay, pray for peace, even when it seems totally improbable and implausible. We We don't let go of that, just like we didn't let go of the dream of returning to Israel after thousands of years. And I think societally also, here in Galut, here in Diaspora, we have to figure out what this looks like. How do we, especially in Montreal, which has a large Jewish community and a large Muslim community, how do we keep from falling into patterns of us and them? How do we not import the conflict that's going on across the ocean into our streets and into our schools, right? How do we remember that we are here living in a liberal democracy and there are rules of engagement in terms of how we talk about each other and how we treat each other? And those are not easy conversations to have ever. They're certainly not easy conversations to have right now. Uh, but I remember Dr. Victor Goldblum, Alava Shalom, writing in his book, Building Bridges, essentially that if we can't find ways to talk to each other here, how on earth can we expect people to find ways to talk to each other there? So I have been kind of keeping those lines of communication open. And we have heard from Christian colleagues and friends, and we have heard from Muslim colleagues and friends. Um, but it is not the easiest time for building bridges right now. And I think when we're on the other side of this, we're going to have to figure out which bridges can be rebuilt and which bridges really have been burned in this. Is there any Torah that's grounding you these days that you would want to share with everybody? It's such a hard question. And it's such an important question, right? And the fact is we're privileged. We've got so many great colleagues. There's so much good and important Torah being spoken right now. So um, it's Rabbi Eliana Yolkut, my colleague, who wrote about the fact that we're mourning so much right now. And that that connected me uh, to thinking about Shiva and thinking about Shoshim and Jewish wisdom on mourning, because our text, of course, is our traditions as well. It's not just 
the text of the Torah or Talmud. So that's been grounding for me right now. Uh, Rabbi Daniel Berg down in Baltimore wrote something really powerful a few weeks ago about the tension between universalism and particularism. Um, that we, again, we progressive Jews tend to lean towards universalism, but we're feeling our particularism very strongly right now and remembering that there's real legitimacy to, you know, the fact that you and I, we we love our own kids more than other people's kids, even though we care about those kids as well, that there is this sense of family and closeness and co- connection and tribe uh, that's not a bad thing. It's a very human thing. It It activates our empathy and our sense of connection. Um, and there are so many Jewish texts on that, especially as we're in Breshit, as we're in Genesis. And sometimes it hits too close to home, right? You read about Lot being taken captive. That doesn't feel far away right now. And it makes you realize, and there's a, a bitter comfort in this, that as a people, we have, unfortunately, a whole lot of experience in being taken captive. And um, and let's not forget in the, that in the same moment uh, that that's happening, Avraham is fighting with God to avoid a humanitarian crisis by saying, why would you kill people if there are a certain amount of innocent people there? And he really is trying to say, maybe we shouldn't go and, you know, create these major crises. But um, sometimes, they're and ne- he and sometimes he loses and sometimes those are necessary. Absolutely. And he loses. Though I'll tell you one thing I learned years ago that when thinking about that text that blew me away when I first learned it. Uh, you know, we talk about the daily tefillot, the daily prayers being connected to the patriarchs, right? So Avraham is shacharit, he's the morning prayer because he gets up early in the morning. And uh, Yitzchak is, is mincha because he's wandering in the fields in the afternoon when he sees Rebecca, he's meditating. And Yaakov is connected with Mariv with the evening prayer because he has all of his dreams and experiences and connections with God at night. And I had always assumed that Avraham being connected with the morning was when he gets up early for the Akedah for the binding of Isaac. But it's not. The proof text is taken from when he wakes up early to check on what's happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sees that his call for justice to God has not been answered, or has been answered, but not in the way that he hoped, and that the cities have been wiped out. And so it's absolutely a moment of devastation and disillusionment. And he prays. He gets up early. He doesn't disengage. He goes to see what's happened. And he still finds a way to talk to God. And that, I think, is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Really, really powerful. That we don't just show up or speak up when things are easy. Sure. Right? We do it especially when things are hard. And that's for others, and that's for God, perhaps, and that's for us. Jonathan Sachs always likes to point out that God answers all of our prayers. Sometimes just the answer is no. <laughs> Um, but that's important, absolutely. But that doesn't give us the absolution to stop praying and stop asking. No, and remember also yeah. that the heart of Shiva is you show up. Absolutely. Right? And Jewish funerals aren't about theology. They're about presence. Absolutely. Uh, and that's important right now. All right. Well, Rabbi Lisa Grishkow, thank you so much. Mazel tov again. It's a well-earned win. Um, I really hope you get to display um, the Kiddush Cup and use it And uh, over the course of this year. Uh, I know that you have a well-earned sabbatical coming up soon. So uh, rest up, refuah shlema on your COVID and mazel tov again. Uh, I cannot wait for you to join the panel of judges for next year's Sermon Slam as well. It will be an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. We're back. Let's get to our nachas. Phoebe, what's your nachas this week? 
Well, mine is going to be the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto. Ooh, I like that. I went there on, I don't remember whichever day it was, that my daughter's daycare was closed because the city had shut the water. So exciting stuff there. Um, but you can try on. So there's more specifically, well, it's two things about the Bata Shoe Museum, okay? One is that I did not realize this, but there's some exhibit where you can, like, try on shoes, do dress up there. Oh, and okay. And it's really, really fun. A lot of it is, like, you know, size whatever 11 size 13 giant stiletto heels um so that was not something i wear every day um and also like their children's shoes their shoes that look like fish that you can put on it's it's very exciting but they also have a new special exhibit where they've turned part of the museum into what looks like a 1980s mall like a set I saw the signs for that when I was in Toronto it's last week because really I was staying cool. two blocks away and mm-hmm. I didn't end up going in. And now you're making me regret that. To add, well, before I get to mine, to add to what you just did, if you're um, a fan of clothing and, and thinking about clothing, um, there's this amazing podcast called Articles of Interest where they take clothing um, and a different article or a different idea about clothes every episode and uh, talk about it in a real deep way. And they just did a live episode from the Bata Shoe Museum with uh, really getting into some various shoes that they had there, which was really, really cool. So I highly recommend you go check that out. Um, my nachas, though, um, is for a piece that I did not end up discussing with Rabbi Lisa Grishko, but people don't know that she is the official Jewish advisor for Canada Post, which is kind of cool, if you ask me. Uh, And they need a consultant on all these, you know, various religions, because sometimes they have gaffes. Like apparently in 2017, their Hanukkah uh, uh, stamp had a big yellow star, which was kind of a no-no on there. You know, they thought it was cool to have a Mbak and David there, but a big yellow one, it just wasn't uh, wasn't good. So um, she advised this year's Hanukkah stamp. We will put a link to it in the show notes. There's a magazine article about it in the CJN magazine coming out. I was about to say, I was about to say, I think I just (laughs) copy edited. If you donate, if you donate uh, now, um, you will get the magazine in time to deliver for delivery for uh, this Hanukkah episode, this Hanukkah issue, this issue, which is much more than just Hanukkah, but has a whole story about this uh, great Canadian Hanukkah stamp that Rabbi Grishko uh, advised on and uh, go check it out. It's really cool. If you're a philatelist um, or even philatically inclined, uh, you might be uh, interested by that. Sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, I think that's about it. That was a great show. I do want to mention that we, I think uh, we have a bunch of subscribers already for our Substack, which is starting next week, I believe. Um, so uh, go to bonjourhai.substack.com. And I believe that we're really getting into the full swing of it in the, in the coming week or two. Um, and there will be an extension of the pod. There'll be news, uh, ideas, things that don't quite make it into the pod. Um, yeah. Phoebe, are you excited about this? You I am have excited a about it. I'm, I do have a Substack. I think this one will be quite different from mine, but uh, that I'll be involved in it also um, Excellent. I, i'm involved in two substacks already so this will be the third one i'm i'm just gonna be in a, a finger in every substack as it were thank you for listening to bonjour chai for the week ending november 11th shabbat parashat chaye sarah and remembrance day the show is produced and edited by zach kaufman the executive producer for cgn podcast is michael freeman our music is by so-called we are a project of the jewish living lab and are distributed by the cjn podcast network you can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'd love it if you told a friend about bonjour chai it is always one of the best ways we 
we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.